Welcome back to State of Emergency. This is Peter Shorsch. I'm here with my co-host, my better half of my podcast life, Jared Moskowitz. Good morning, Jared. Good morning. Um, first of all, we got some positive feedback from people about the like first week pod. We had uh, none other than Brian Ballard, you know, Uber lobbyist to the stars. He's who God would hire if he had a permitting issue. Um, and we, he sent a, a cool note among other people. So um, I guess we did an okay job last week. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, that's, that is definitely high praise, uh, you know, appreciated. And I don't know if he's listening to us uh, on the treadmill or in the bathroom, but I'll take either one. Um, a lot of people were, um, were highly interested in your colonoscopy. Maybe we'll give them an update at the end. We'll tease that out. Uh, <laughs> we'll let, <laughs> it was clear. It was clear, Peter. That's the answer. It was, it was clear. Um, well, now you ruined that. Why is people, anybody going to listen? Um, well, I mean, let's get the health stuff out of the way. I don't want to leave them hanging. Like, is he okay? Is he sick? Like, well, let's not do that to people. They got enough to worry about uh, nowadays. No, look, it was a smooth procedure. Uh, I don't remember any of it, which is the way I'd like to keep it because I, I did think to myself as I was going in, like if I wasn't asleep and I was awake, what would me and the doctor talk about while he was doing this procedure? Like, what would we do to pass the time as that was happening? And so uh, I still I still am curious about what what topic that would have been and how would that have been comfortable for me or him? And if he was comfortable, how would I feel about that? And so uh, I, I was very happy to take uh, the Michael Jackson drug of choice and not remember any of it. All right. That brings up a good question, although I want to say one other thing before we all right, uh, we do have a guest this week, uh, Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Patronis. Um, we'll get to him in a second. I, but this prompts a question. Are you recognizable now? Like, I know you were a state rep and a big deal beforehand. Probably not. Uh, but now, like, because you did so much, like, hurricane briefings and all that, are you a little bit more recognizable out on the dangerous streets of uh, of Parkland? I mean, well, I mean, listen, I think, you know, I became recognizable in my town. Uh, you know, I was a city commissioner here for six years, and then I was in the state house. But obviously, when the when the shooting happened at the high school, and I took a lead role, I think that's, you know, in my hometown, that's what elevated uh, you know, my recognition, not just in the city, but in the county. But no, I'm more recognizable now. I spent a lot of time, obviously, with the governor and on the uh, on television. But but I will reiterate what I've said previously. Uh, most people don't know who we are. Uh, you know, if you're not uh, if you're not the governor, they don't know their state reps. They don't know their agency heads. They don't really know their cabinet members, quite frankly. And so while I'm more noticeable, uh, I, I, I think everyone should put their ego in check that most people still don't know who we are. Uh, I want to also circle back. You bring up a good point about health and it brings up a question about Michelle. Uh, she's doing well, but your story about like what your, um, your doctor, what he's comfortable with. One of the funny stories from Michelle's, um, you know, just ordeal over the last few months is I met her new gynecologist. Um, and you want to talk about this really good looking guy. Um, and I'm just like, I'm like, who are you? And he's just like, I'm Dr. So-and-so I'm your wife's gynecologist. And I'm like, the hell you say, I mean, this was like, you know, they, they talk about, you know, dreamy from, uh, from <laughs> that show. 
this guy was so good looking. Like I, I just, I was, I, I was really disturbed at, at, at this, this good looking man. I wanted somebody a little more like, I don't know, just like not as attractive, um, you know, examining my wife. And so, but he turned out to be a great guy. He left me, he said this, which was awesome. Um, he said, listen, I'm really not known for, you know, like being like this incredible surgeon or anything like that. People know me around the hospital for giving really good hugs. And I, I don't know what to do with that, but that was, um, that was, that was one of those stories, Peter, that you come upon in life that you don't share, <laughs> right? that you, you take that story to the That's grave. That's what this podcast is, is you and I sharing stories we're not supposed to share and people love it. You're right. That is the intention uh, of this is to, is to tell them the truth that uh, you wandered the halls, ran into your wife's gynecologist, and he informed you that he gives excellent hugs. Um, on that note, uh, I got Jimmy messaging me and I know his time is valuable. So we're going to, we're going to stop here, bring on the chief, talk to him about Surfside and a couple other things. And then at the end of the show, I want to talk, Jared, there were a lot of polls out this week about 2022. Um, they are the crack cocaine of politics and I'm ready to, um, to, uh, snort some of that down. So, um, let's get to that at the end, but first let's talk to chief financial officer, Jimmy Patronus. This segment is going to be brought to you by Kleenex because between Jared, Jimmy, and myself, one of us is bound to cry, uh, especially after all the stuff you two have seen over the last two months. Good morning, Chief. How are you? Hey, Peter. How are you? Hey, Jared. Mr. CFO, how are you doing? Good, buddy. Good, buddy. Good to hear your voices. All right. Um, Jared said something to me offline uh, and I don't know if you know this or not, but he said that something to the effect that this was this was really your shiny moment um, over the last um, the whole period of Surfside that you were down there nonstop. Um, and you and I've talked about it a little bit, and I've certainly seen you on social media. Um, so it's not kudos to you, but we'd like to start and get your thoughts. We're we're, we're two months out from Surfside now. Um, where is that at? What were the lasting impressions that you had from it? So, uh, one, thank you for uh, for inviting me and allowing me to join you. Um, please uh, give my best to Michelle. I know she's uh, you and the family have, have been through a lot over the last month yourself. Um, you know, uh, it, it's again, like you said, it's, it's hard to believe it's been two months since Surfside. Um, I remember the feeling I got. Uh, I got a call at five o'clock in the morning. I was in Fort Lauderdale. Um, my chief of staff had called and told me that the condo had collapsed. And uh, I had, golly, Peter, why do you say stuff like this? I um, I had my five-year-old, I mean, my, ten, my my 13-year-old son, Theo, with me. And I get this call, and all I'm down there is I was on official meetings, meeting with legislators. All I had was a suit pack. And uh, so we get up, and um, I had to find somebody to take care of Theo because I couldn't take Theo to the scene of this disaster. And so getting all these mixed reports of how bad it really is, um, you know, uh, a friend of mine takes care of Theo and, and Caleb and I are, are off to, to Surfside and we, we pull up and, and really it was about a, about a one block site when we got there that morning. Uh, and we walked up and it really looked kind of normal, uh, because the street side of the condominium, uh, looked, looked fine. Um, when you walked around 
the first corner of it, you saw this this devastation that was it was so raw, it was so traumatic. Um, you saw uh, a stack of what I call concrete pancakes. It was all the balconies on top of each other. Um, it was painful. Um, I saw. I saw and just uh, it looked like somebody kicked over an ant hill with all the first responders just all over the scene. And and as as you know, literally in less than a week, the whole entire uh, you know effort grew to I think as many as about six city blocks. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, it was the the third largest. Um, you know, disaster where we had, uh, you know, building disaster in the United States history, only second to the Murr building in Oklahoma and the World Trade Center. Uh, and Surfside wasn't an attack. So, um, you know, we, we've got some of the most amazing first responders uh, in the state. They worked around the clock, you know, 12 hour shifts. Um, they were on the site starting 145 in the morning. Ultimately, they saved uh, 37 lives. Um, and, you um, and gave uh, some closure and dignity to the families of the 98 that were lost. Um, so um, anyway, um, this was a, this was the, was the largest deployment in the history of the state of Florida that was not a hurricane. So, um, you know, was, uh, and, and, and these task forces, and I, I'll stop here because I know y'all, y'all want to talk too. I'll talk all day. Um, these task forces were Tallahassee. They were Jacksonville. They were Orlando. They were Tampa. Um, they were Fort Myers. They were um, Fort Lauderdale. They were Miami. So, you know, wherever the disaster happens, um, state of Florida shows up and, uh, you know, everybody sucks it up and comes to wherever the disaster is. And these guys were chomping that to bit to work. Um, they showed up at Miami just like they showed up in northwest Florida for Hurricane Michael. And um, incidentally, the same number of people that responded to the one acre site and Surfside to work that building uh, collapse was the same amount of resources deployed for a Cat 5 hurricane that affected 12 counties in Northwest Florida. I'm gonna let you take this, Jared. Uh, this is, I mean, I don't wanna turn this into, um, you know, I, it's, it's a tragedy, but you guys are so much more expert on this. I'm gonna let you take the point on this uh, part of the, the segment. Yeah, I mean, you know, Peter, I, as I've said to you, and I, I said this to, to Jimmy when I, when I saw him, when he was still in it, uh, is, you know, I, this is not why elected officials run for office. There's lots of reasons we run for office. We want to help people, of course, but we don't think of these events in our mind when we're running for office, these terrible tragedies, and some of which we couldn't even in our you know, most imaginative brains come up with what happened in Surfside. Uh, and that I believe that there are people who go through these uh, events, they either rise to the occasion uh, or they, you know, they, they, you know, fall into the background. Uh, and, and I think, uh, I, I think Jimmy Patronus did uh, not just what was, uh, you know, necessary or required. I think he really rose to the occasion. I know what that uh, is like uh, from my experience in Parkland. I know when it feels like you have to take all of that on your shoulders, right? And you have to try to, 
you know, Jimmy had to be there for those guys who were working in unbelievable conditions, not just all the gear and the heat and the lightning and the rain and the fires of the pile. Uh, you know, you know, J Jimmy literally was not just their cheerleader. He was their quarterback. Uh, and, and, you know, for people who, you know, sometimes you, you see these things on TV, so and it desensitizes it because you can't see what's happening on the ground, which is why it's so important to bring elected officials to these, to these, uh, to these sort of things. I know, I know Jimmy did that. I know a lot of, uh, the governor did that to, to bring other elected officials so they can see it. We did that in Parkland. You need to see it. Uh, I, I saw Jimmy at the pile. I saw Jimmy there. I saw him with the families. I saw him with the first responders every day. Uh, and, uh, you know, for the people who didn't get to see that, uh, Jimmy provided a leadership, not that others didn't, not that the governor didn't, not that the mayor didn't. It really was a team effort. But I think Jimmy, uh, in my opinion, uh, you know, took this in a, in a real personal way. And so, uh, you know, I, Jimmy, I try to tell people years later that the images of Parkland are still with me. They still haunt me. You know, and, and and you're only two you're only two months out. Sure. I mean, sure. you know, you know, from a from a mental standpoint, not just yourself, but your guys. I mean, how's everybody doing? Well, so um, I still I call and check on them every week. I just I just you know ping these guys out and um, and and Jared, thank you for those kind words. Um, you know, um, I, I, the, the urban search and rescue guys are amazing. Uh, it was a different type of trauma on them mentally, physically, emotionally. Um, you know, as I was talking to some of the guys who deployed over Katrina, and that's just it. These these are the same guys, some of which deployed to the Trade Center, some of them deployed to the Murr Building, some of them deployed to Katrina. So they have got a lot of life experiences. And this particular collapse surfside, there was a lot of them. Well, I don't say a lot of them. Any of them is a lot, in my opinion that immediately retired after the event. Um, this was a, a, a little bit more traumatic than, than they were uh, anticipating um, is with, and I, and I don't mean to be too graphic, but as they would approach Katrina in a house and they would find a deceased, they would simply just mark the building and the coroner's office would come and take care of the rest. The coroners are used to doing this. Um, in the case of Surfside, they would work hours on a site where they would find somebody. And because out of the respect, especially, you know, when you may have, you know, somebody who's orthodox or, you know, I mean, they, they treated every single person with such an enormous amount of effort, energy and respect because, you know, they, they had to do their job before the coroner could get there to do any of their job. So, I mean, they would, they would literally work on a victim for up to four hours or longer, you know, just to, to be able to give, that family, the type of closure they deserved. Um, and so that's not part of their, you know, MO and their battle rhythm. Um, so, you know, yeah, th these guys definitely do need a little more um, love and attention. This is why we had mental health PTSD specialist boots on the ground the morning it happened. Um, we had more deployments come out. We had more priests and rabbis and you could shake a stick at, they were everywhere. They were in the encampments. They were with the, the families. We just had everybody trying to hold everybody's hands just a little bit. And it's no different than I, I remember the first time I saw Jared, I'm, I'm walking out of the command, command center and there's Jared. And you know what? He's there to support Kevin. You know, I think you had a Dr. Pepper and a battery for his phone because 
poor Kevin. I mean, he he came with nothing. I mean, he just you know just you know just showed up there. He like he beamed in from outer space, and and so he comes there with a little of the clothes on his back. And Jared is there because he knows what Kevin needs to continue to be functional. And and that's just Jared. Jared is just you know incredibly conscientious. But you know what? If you cross him and and you're in the way of him accomplishing his, his mission, you know he will make sure that you are treated with respect. You're moved out of the way because. Jared's got, uh, you know, an emergency situation to deal with. And so it didn't what he dealt with with the pandemic and how Jared was so, so commanding when it helped to make sure, you know, Northwest Florida was, was, you know, still in the process of being made whole because of the efforts Jared made when he was emergency management director. No, thanks, Jimmy. I mean, I tell, you know, when, when I heard all about this, obviously, and Kevin flew in uh, and was on the ground, uh, I reached right out to him and said, you know, uh, you know, what do you, what do you need, Kevin? I'm 50 minutes away. Uh, you know, and I, I tried to, well, I tried to say to Kevin, I said, Kevin, look, you have a lot more emergency management experience than I have, but let me tell you what you're about to go through. Uh, what you're about to go through. I tell people it wasn't just the scene. Uh, you know, I remember again, going back to Douglas, it wasn't just the scene of the school, the bullet holes through the windows or the backpacks piled upside or seeing down the hallway of what that, what that looked like. And it, in this instance, I knew it wasn't just going to be the scene, which Jimmy, as soon as I saw it, 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 I had images of like a plane crash. I mean, it, the thing just looked like it came yeah. down and, and I was worried that we wouldn't find many people, but I told Kevin, I said, Kevin, the other part that you're not seeing here, which is going to be tough and is going to weigh on you emotionally, is the Family Reunification Center. Uh, I remember what that was like when parents came looking for their kids in Douglas, and that only lasted, you know, about 10 hours. I knew this was going to be days at the time. I didn't know that it would be even longer than that. But I, I, I said to Kevin, I said, it's, Kevin, this is, this is going to be really tough on you emotionally. So, um, you know, we we don't talk about that aspect of these disasters because, you know, we're all supposed to be tough and, you know, show leadership, which is what we do. Uh, but, you know, when the cameras are off, uh, I mean, you know, the, the people who like Jimmy, the first responders, the, the volunteers, the people who came to feed other people, uh, just even bystanders, quite frankly, who lived yeah, in the neighborhood yeah. and couldn't believe what had happened. I mean, I, I was very thankful uh, that the federal government literally broke every FEMA rule book uh, to declare this a national disaster. This was a national disaster. It may have been on a small piece of property, but to, to lose 100 people uh, in a disaster like this, I mean, there's just never been anything like it. Uh, and, and, you know, Jimmy, someone, uh, I think this disaster in a way um, you know, took on, uh, you know, Jimmy's personality. And what, what I mean by that is, is that, you know, Jimmy's someone who could work with anybody, you know, to, to, to try to, you know, get, get something accomplished. He was always like that when, when he was in, when he was in the house. Um, and, you know, to see the president, the governor, uh, the mayor, our cabinet officers, senators, representatives, local elected officials, uh, pull together in a 9-11-esque moment, uh, smaller, obviously, um, was, you know, re reassured me that we can still do big things together when these terrible disasters, uh, disasters happen. Jimmy, I'm, I'm wondering, like, what do you think after going through this from, you know, more resources for first responders to, you know, 
maybe maybe changes in the condo law. I mean, you you have the full gambit perspective. I mean, what do you think are the lessons learned from this from a response standpoint to a you know legislative standpoint? I mean, what what do you think the response needs to look like? So so to your your point about, you know, it was all that and, you know, and all political parties put aside, you know, I, I do I really appreciate the leadership of, of Democrats and Republicans that came together for such a traumatic situation. And, you know, I remember when the president came and I'm sitting there with all the task force, one, two members, and there was some sprinkling some of the others and, you know, talking, he's telling a story and he looks, anybody got any questions? And I anything. So I stepped forward and I said, you know, I introduced myself and I said, Mr. President, I said, you know, these guys have just been through hell uh, and I'm just really worried about their their mental health and their wellness. I want to make sure they get the help they need because PTSD will be part of this. And, you know, I just want to ask for your commitment to make sure they get the resources they need. I don't think I needed to do that, but I think it was important for me to make sure that those guys in the room realized that somebody was asking for that in front of them. And, you know, I, 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 we, we've got some incredibly urban search and rescue guys. Um, you know, I, I, I just, um, that's why I think it's so important. I, I, I told them all the time, I said, not too big to get a, a hug. And um, because it was so, so traumatic, there was a, a Greek family that I met with and they came to the, and they just wanted to thank for the urban search and rescue guys finding their son Andreas and I'm thinking oh my god you know, De Devin had my earplugs in I'm about to do a, a live hit on Fox and I, I was in the commercial break I gave Devin my earplugs I said dude I said you figure this out and we we sit there and we sat for the next half hour with this Greek family from Houston to come and collect their son and so a couple of urban search and rescue guys were walking by from task force four and I went and grabbed him. I said, man, I hate to do this to you. I said, will you let this family just thank you a minute? And man, they wouldn't stop hugging this. They wouldn't stop hugging the, the urban search and rescue guy. And it's awkward. It, you know, hero worshiping is kind of, it's kind of a, a thing that we're not used to. We're not used to being, hearing nice things about us. We wouldn't show an appreciation to these guys who, um, you know, had just been spending, you know, this was day six, I think. Um, so, uh, I know I, 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 I totally digress from what you were going, uh, getting back to what I think was to be some closure with this. The insurance companies, as of even yesterday, um, they're paying out policies at policy limits, even though the contracts they were under gave them plenty of outs. So the, like the, the biggest policy, I think it was tuned to just an $1 million. The company wrote a $30 million check there was specific exclusions in the policy, in the contract that does not cover uh, building collapse. These policies in Florida, they're built for windstorm. Those policies are insuring against hurricanes, not against building collapses. This don't happen in the United States, at least not naturally. So um, anyhow, I, I do appreciate how the carriers have stepped up and just, you know, put things aside, you know, recognize a disaster as a disaster and have started to pay money out to the maximum levels that the policy was insured for. Um, as one of my attorneys in my office was pointing out to me yesterday, a homeowner's association can stop deferred maintenance payments uh, for roofs, for wall, for waterproofing. They can stop those deferred maintenance savings accounts with a simply 50% plus one vote. If the homeowner's association says, you know, we don't want to put 
that extra money and our dues aside anymore uh, for those repairs, um, you know, they can do that. You know, Jared, Jared, to your request, I think, you know, maybe that vote needs to be changed to a supermajority vote where, you know, that homeowner association has got to be a little more obligated. It's like a small city, but they got to be a little more obligated to make the type of prepared uh, and preventative maintenance that needs to take place. It's no different than a county commission raising millage uh, in order to make sure that they run a safe community. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I've been thinking about, obviously, what is the response? Peter and I had this conversation. Is this a one-off event? Was there something specifically wrong with this building or or there are, could there be other situations out there? And, and I'm sure you've thought a lot about that, Jimmy. You've seen the reports, uh, you know, of other buildings being evacuated, other structural issues. And so, um, you know, sometimes government isn't always the answer, right? We don't have to just turn to government. I know you, I know you believe in that. Uh, but, you know, when, when you see an event like this, I, 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 I'm sure you agree that it, 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 it deserves a cursory review of everything to figure out, is there anything that, that, that needs tweaking? I mean, as you know, uh, you know, I, and I'll even just go to the response phase. Um, you know, I, I've always advocated for the division of emergency management, which uses these urgent search and rescue guys when we have, uh, uh, when we have these events, I mean, I, I'd love to see Florida continue to build more resources for disaster response with these urban search and rescue. And that means dollars. That means money uh, so that they can have have the resources that they need. Not that they don't, uh, but they can always have more. They can always have newer stuff. I mean, I remember reading the stories about how many boots and gloves these guys were going through. Um, so it, it isn't just about getting into the law and the code about, ooh, what can we change, you know, in, in condo law. It's also looking at, you know, the front end of this and saying, hey, in this response, God forbid we had to do this. What additional resources, you know, you know could we have? You see, any, you see any tweaks or changes on the response side? Yeah, so um, we, we have put in a, uh, a legislative budget request the last couple of years for some sustainment dollars for urban search and rescue guys. Uh, I've already um, talked to uh, leadership in the House and Senate. They're on board. Um, we have got an appropriation that's going to come through the Department of Emergency Management you know, jointly with our office, and we're going to probably build a um, kind of a, a little bit of a match program uh, we have gone through the rolling stock needs of the equipments that that has just blown out from these these task forces all over the state. So, I mean, and we're not talking about big dollars and a, and a hundred billion dollar budget. We're talking less than 20 million dollars statewide. And that those dollars will even include in it ongoing sustainment for that figure. So um, but, you know, we're going to make sure the local counties and cities uh, that participate, um, you know, because they'll be able to, to, to provide, you know, life safety services to their communities with those that same equipment, we're gonna make it a joint effort uh, because whenever disaster strikes, like I said, Jacksonville and Miami will respond to Northwest Florida, just like Northwest Florida will respond to Tampa. You know, uh, we're all in this one state together. So you know, I do appreciate Kevin. Kevin's been very proactive about that and, and jointly working with our office for those exact needs you're pointing out. Yeah, well, look, you know, that's that's the division's role. You know, there was a lot of talk early on, you know, when when some folks tried to turn this politically 
uh, you know, about, oh, you know, we didn't request resources from FEMA early enough. And, and I uh, was quoted publicly saying that's hogwash because the resources that we would have needed on you know, we're already located in Dade County, and those were the those were the federal task force uh, team one and team two. You you know that they're located in the city of Miami and Dade County. But one of the things that that made me think about is, you know, you never want a disaster to happen in a, anywhere, but it did happen in the area in which these guys could get there as soon as possible. But what if it didn't happen in Dade County? What if it happened in a county that didn't have those resources? How would the response have have been different. I mean, does that does that concern you at all? I mean, is that I mean, was there any I mean, has there been any thought about that? You know, these guys had to travel minutes, you know, if they had to tr when I remember when those teams had to travel all the way up to the Bay County. I mean, that's an eight hour drive with all of that equipment. Right. Well, uh -huh. and, and that's and that's the you know why we have, you know, these task forces broken up all over the state in order to make sure one can be prepared for for a split second of but but on, on the, the flip side, we typically deal with hurricanes. Um, and so we do have a little bit of lead time of who's going to be activated and we'll get them, you know, basically geared up, gassed up, ready to roll. Uh, with Irma, we had all the task forces staged in the Orange County Convention Center. So they were all in there ready to go deploy out nice and central location because Irma, who knew where that thing was going to make land? But one minute it was going into Brickle. The next day ended up going in through through Naples and Fort Myers. So again, we, we brought the equipment all stage central for to deploy out. But the but the, the fact of it is is their equipment is worn out. Um, it's not it's not uh, you know when it's going to break down. It it is going to break down. So some of the equipment you know needs to be replaced. Just when we sent uh, Task Force Four out of Orlando to um, Louisiana to respond to the hurricanes over there. I think they had three flat tires on the way going over. So, so the equipment, you know, I hope they never have to use it to your point earlier, but when they do, you know what, it, it has fatigue. That's got to be addressed. Maintenance got to be addressed and those take dollars. Peter, I want to get you in here, but I, I want to end, you know, my portion on, on something. What? what you, you know, hey, uh, thank you for joining us. Today. I'm sorry. I was napping for the last 20 minutes, but I, <laughs> well, that's no different than a regular uh, day for you at this time. I mean, and I'm sure I'm sure people could tell stories. Uh, but, you know, I think when people think of the CFO's office, right, uh, and or people are thinking about what does the CFO do, or maybe they're thinking, you know, I want to run for CFO one day. Uh, you know, I don't think they recognize or even know, quite frankly, that the CFO is also the fire marshal. Uh, and in and is in charge and is in charge of these sort of things. It's one of those, it's one of those things that you know is on your on your list of duties. But it's not one of the things that is is top line for people when they hear chief financial officer. Uh, and and I think Jimmy, what you I think Jimmy, what you've done, you know, with this event, not intentionally so, but because it was thrust upon you is I think from now on, people need to look at the chief financial officer, not just as the chief financial officer, but also as the fire marshal. You know, does the person who wants to be CFO have the temperament and the leadership abilities to do these sort of, you know, terrible disasters? Uh, you know, balancing the books and, 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 and running the finances of the state, super important job number one. But I think right there, 
you know, is 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 being the the chief fire marshal. I mean, and and I think you showed actually how important it is to have somebody who who could have the temperament uh, to deal with 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 that sort of stuff. Well, uh, those need to be recognized. I'm I'm proud to represent them. But you know, um, I remember Jared when you were at DEM and I came to you on some needs, um, and we were worried about making sure our first responders could get vaccines. Um, and you made you you gave me a lot of comfort about the type of priority you were going to ensure that our first responders could have access to the vaccines in order to make those 911 calls. You made sure that they had access to PPE so they could continue to do their job because they don't have a choice. Um, they can't just say, I, you know what, I'm, I'm going to call in sick. Um, you know, those calls I, this morning uh, at two o'clock this morning, there was a fire here in Tallahassee on the FAMU campus right next door to it. And, you know, there's there's eight families that are displaced. I was there this morning and I met with Tallahassee Fire Rescue and I met there with our fire inspectors. And, you know, this fire took place two o'clock in the morning. They had it under control by four o'clock. Um, so, I mean, you know, thank God people will take that call and want to be that type of a public servant. So um, we're going to do this legislative session. Peter, this is the first time I've said this. We're going to have a, a big urban search and rescue day at the Capitol. And as many of these guys that we can get up here, we're going to honor them. Uh, the governor has offered to do a reception at the mansion. Uh, we're going to do resolutions in both the House and Senate. Uh, and we're going to do also a cabinet resolution for them. So we're going to use this uh, day to honor them for their sacrifice and their service. And I think we're losing Jimmy there a little bit, which is okay, other than to say uh, we will have him back on, I'm sure, as we get closer. I wanted to ask him about FSU football, but I think we lost him there. Um, he's traveling. And plus, cell reception up in uh, North Florida is never great. Um, so thank you to uh, the Chief for joining us today. We're going to take a real quick break, and then Jared and I will come back to talk uh, – 2022. So we're back, you know, Jared, in the future, and now don't get too excited about it. We will probably have like actual advertisers in those breaks. And you and I will, you know, if they give us like a hundred bucks, it's going to be $50 each or 70, 30, you know, to you. I think that's what the uh, arrangement was supposed to be or something like that. But one day, we will have advertisers um, uh, delivering a message inside those breaks. I think. I think what we should do is we we'll, we should take the advertisers and we should make jackets, right? <laughs> like we're in NASCAR. Yeah. And I will wear I'll wear the jacket of our advertisers, right? It it'll it'll be like Gray Robinson and Capital City and you know the city of Tallahassee. That's what that's that's what the jacket will look like. So you are you are approaching amazing territory because I've always said for like, you know, like I've always wanted to take over the Capitol Press skits and actually make them funny. Um, and what like one year I did a thing like I kind of like uh, me and Brian Burgess dropped in and I did like, you know how like E uh, does those ridiculous red carpet specials before the Academy Awards. Well, I went out there and I did like. I did like this, like gorilla gonzo red carpet show. So I'd be like, you Ryan, C you Ryan Seacrested it. I did. And I, so like Kathy Mears would come up. I'm like, Kathy, Kathy, what are you wearing tonight? And she's like, um, Ross, um, 
I don't know, I, you know, and so, uh, and then, you know, then uh, like Adam Putnam would come in and there was all these like awkward moments because, you know, people didn't want to talk to me and I'm Who, like, so who's, Adam, who's Adam Putnam? <laughs> so, it's great footage out there. Burgess still has it, but I promised to go to Prescott's like, you know, everybody says, you know, that I have a lot of advertisers and I've wanted to do like, just like walk down Adam street with the NASCAR drivers and have like the Southern group on the, you know, you the should make end. yourself, listen, you really should, even if you don't wear it out in public, you should make you yourself a jacket just to yes. see what it would look like and then just frame it in your house. Uh, right. <laughs> have like a number, like, you know, number nine and then like, uh, you know, Florida power and light down the sleeves and, um, and Jimmy Petronas, uh, for CFO. Yeah, I'm totally doing that. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe you brought that up. Um, all right. So that w then went long. We're just going to talk a little bit more though here. I, so right now is like polling season. We're getting like, we're getting like the first round of like year out from election polls. And I know what I think about them, but I'm going to, so there was like four or five numbers that have come out over the last like two weeks. Um, I think you are an honest broker when it comes to polling. Like, obviously you're kind of a middle of the road guy like me. So I'm going to give you the numbers. I want you to give me a sense. We used to do this thing, the uh, Van Corn I, the salt shaker test was the poll credible. Um, I'm not asking you to judge the veracity of the polling, but what do you think about the numbers in terms of, ah, that's where the race is. That's where it should be. Maybe that's out of, out of whack, et cetera. So I'm going to start with, this was one of our polls. St. Pete polls came out with the number yesterday. Marco Rubio, 48%. Val Demings, 46%. So Rubio was a two-point lead over Demings. Quick thoughts on that poll. So I, I think that race uh, is closer, just in my general sense, is closer than maybe the governor's race. Uh, okay. And, and the reason is, is that um, I don't think Senator Rubio uh, gets the credit that people give the governor for the COVID handling. I know there's some people who, who are on the opposite side of giving the governor any credit on COVID, but uh, I don't think Rubio gets the benefit of any of, of any of that, you know, schools reopening, businesses reopening. He doesn't get that benefit. And so I think, uh, and you, you, you know, that race is way more nationalized politically uh, than than the governor's races uh, at the moment, uh, even as the national media tries to do that every single day. So, uh, you know, that is going to be a close race, Peter. That's going to be a turnout race. And quite frankly, even though that's at the top of the ticket, I think uh, depending upon where the governor sits, uh, you know, at the time, you know, you could see the governor dragging Senator Rubio up versus the, uh, the other way around. Okay. Um, I... I'm going to give you another St. Pete poll. This is a little bit older. Um, you know, so with St. Pete polls, I basically pay Matt Flora at St. Pete polls to commission these polls. Um, quite honestly, they're just incredible for traffic. I like to get a sense of where they're at. They help me guide my thinking, especially on local races, but they're just click, 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 clickbait. Uh, this one was the clickety of clickbait. This one had Charlie Crist, 45, Ron DeSantis, 44. This came out uh, about nine or 10 days ago. What do you think about that number? Charlie Chris with a one point lead over Ron DeSantis. Yeah, so listen, I, I mean, I don't think uh, with all due respect to both my dear friends, uh, the Congressman uh, and the commissioner, I, I don't think either one of them are leading the governor at the moment. However, 
I do think the race has tightened dramatically at, of, as the snapshot of the moment, right? The snapshot of the moment, which is what a poll is, it's not necessarily where the race is going. It's not necessarily where the race was. It's where the race is at the moment they ask. Uh, and at this moment, with the massive surge in, in COVID cases uh, and uh, schools reopening, where parents have anxiety of their kids going to school, and with the, uh, you know, the, you know, the discussions about masks in schools, which quite frankly, I think uh, was, a, a, you know, a, a miscalculation, um, you know, I do think that the race has tightened. However, I don't think that that is a trend, meaning I don't think that's what where the, where the numbers are going to be once once this wave is finished. When you and I are having this conversation in, in November, and you will tell me if I was wrong, I don't think that's what your numbers are going to show. Which leads me to, and I, I don't, I'm going to butcher it, I think it's Susquehanna, but there was a, a poll yesterday that came out, and it had DeSantis beating both Democrats, and I think it was accurate, but Charlie Chris was only down three, Nikki Freed was down 10. So my question to you on this one is, is that accurate? Do you think that Charlie right now is running ahead of where Nikki is running versus Ron DeSantis? Not whether or not they're gonna beat DeSantis, but that Charlie is, I guess, better positioned uh, into the primary. What do you think about that, that number? So I don't think Nikki's down 10, right? So that gives me a little pause. But I do, I do think it's fair if you're a, you know, if you've been watching politics in Florida for a long time and it being so early in the race, I do think it's fair to think that that the guy who's been on the ballot several times, who's run both as a Democrat and a Republican, who's a well-known commodity, who feels that he can appeal to the independents because they look at him maybe as a middle of the road guy. I, I do think it would be, it's logical to say that that at this moment, he probably is a little closer just on sheer name ID. Uh, but I mean, it, it's it, not to the cliche. I mean, you know, in the primary, set, setting aside the governor, in the primary, it's just way too early uh, to, to figure out whether everything I said about Charlie is gonna hold or if 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 Nikki is going to is Nikki's going to bridge that gap, I, I think um, you know again just a snapshot in time. And I said this last podcast. I think uh, the commissioner was way more hands on in going after the governor on COVID over the last week and a half, especially what's going on in the schools. I, I got to say this, Peter. In all of these polls, uh, I'm very interested to see if what's going on in the schools. A, if we do see surges and spikes in the schools, which we didn't see a year ago, the governor was correct about that, um, uh, about getting them reopened. Um, I'm interested to see if if that has a long impact. We've seen a couple of school districts now where hundreds of kids in the first couple of days have to be quarantined. I'm interested to see with parents if the politics around schools and masks and all of that stuff, if that has a lasting impact, because the one thing I can tell you after doing COVID for a year and a half and watching the polls is that it has not had a lasting impact, meaning that when they get mad, right, that of something going on, they're mad. And then it just goes away, it, it, you know, and the polls go back up to kind of 
you know, the economy and, and business and, and you, know, you know, teacher raises and how people are feeling generally. COVID has not had that longstanding impact on the race. Uh, and if it doesn't have it now with parents and schools, I don't know, just thinking as a Democrat, I don't know that COVID is going to be the winning issue uh, in November of 22. Okay, I want to circle back to that. that uh, well, that'll be our jumping off point. Um, just to, my last poll was um, PPP had a poll that had Nikki up over Charlie 36-33. I, I get your general gist right now that you probably think that the race is closer than, than even that, um, correct? Because I do want to go into, I, want, I don't want to counter what you said there. I will say this about the political. I think, number one, I've been resistant and hesitant to making political predictions on COVID in general. I just think it's, I kind of think it's gross. I don't like the Twitter verse like, oh, we're going to beat DeSantis because 41,000 people have died. Um, just like I don't like DeSantis, you know, like uh, saying, hey, we're not as bad as California because 50,000 people have died. I think anytime you connect um, COVID with a political outcome, um, like that, an electoral outcome. I'm just resistant to do that. No, I don't. I don't uh, disagree with that, Peter. But and the only reason I want to jump in is is you know, in some aspects, that was forced upon the governor to to sure. defend defend him doing that. You know, when when the media says you're going to be okay. the next Italy, you're going to be the next New York, and you're doing a terrible job, which is what they were doing. You know, it, what is the governor supposed to say? He's supposed to say, really, look at our nursing homes compared to New York. We did we made these decisions and we wound up with a better outcome than New York did. Really, we've had less hospitalizations than New York had. Really, we've had less deaths than New York had. I agree. All of that is gross. But the problem is, is that the, the national media forced that on 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 elected officials. That is going to be, I think, a topic for a, a, a whole podcast, because that's something that I don't know why I'm so sensitive about that. Um, I, I want to close the loop on a point you made. I agree with you. I don't think in October of in November of 2022, we're going to be saying, hey, there were 500 kids that were quarantined in Hillsborough. I'm going to vote one way or the other. But I will say the danger for DeSantis is the likability has, has just dropped off. And it's dropped off rapidly. And as some people have said to me, um, who are polling this race a lot, um, they don't know that that likability ever comes back. It is remarkable that the governor's approval rating, his likability numbers have dropped by anywhere from 12 to 20 points within a month or so. I don't know that he ever gets those back. That's not to say that he's not going to win. I still think he wins because I think that he's going to have 150 to $200 million uh, versus basically some cash-strapped, flawed Democratic candidates, either Charlie or Nikki. Um, I, I think he still is a 65% chance of winning is probably where I would put it. That being said, he is now in this territory that I didn't think that he would ever be in, especially when I would see you next to him a year and a half ago. This idea that he's going to win again by 30,000 votes is much more likely than him being the governor of the remember this was a guy with 66 percent approval rating only about a year or 14 months ago he has squandered all of that he has squandered a tremendous amount of likability and i've said to chris i've said that to nikki 
allow him to just keep punching. I think, I think these press conferences do him zero good. I think that they are an ad for the Charlie Crist and Nikki Freed campaign. Every time he comes down there, and we'll transition into the issue you want to talk about, um, every time he comes down there and talks about uh, Regeneron or something for a minute and then follows it up with 14 minutes of aggrievement at the media that doesn't like him and his condescension. I know that that plays well in the villages. I still, there's, I still think there's a lot of people that don't know. Like he doesn't have a reservoir of goodwill here in Florida. I mean, he's a basically probably the most unknown governor, you know, that, I mean, even more so than Rick Scott because Scott had so much money to advertise. I just feel like he has squandered a likability factor here and he's not made up for it. I think that will hurt him and will keep this race close now and through November. You did want to talk about, um, and I don't even know how to pronounce it. This is how stupid I am. Um, monoclonal, monoclonal, monoclonal antibodies. Okay. Do you want to talk about, what are we talking about here as we close out the show with those? Well, because, I, yeah, I'll tell you why I wanted to bring that up. So, you know, there's, yeah. been, there's been a little, you know, Twitter conversation, which I hate elevating, but, but I, but I want to bring it up because I want to, I want to just silence it quite frankly. Okay. So, you know, look, it, I, and I've said this to my, I've said this to my friends in the media. I've said this to my Democratic colleagues, which is, you know, don't make these accusations that you have no evidence on, right? And the latest accusation against the governor is that the reason he's pushing monoclonal antibody treatment, which, by the way, is a real treatment. It's not just a treatment for the unvaccinated. It's a treatment for vaccinated people who are getting COVID, which, by the way, is way more significant than the numbers show. Because if you test yourself at home, that doesn't get reported. If you don't feel well and you have COVID symptoms and you don't test yourself at all, not reported. Okay, so they're we're, they're having vaccine breakthrough. If you think the government is rushing a booster shot for September 20th and you don't think that's because they've seen the data on significant vaccine breakthrough, there is breakthrough. And so monoclonal antibodies are for both. It's for unvaccinated and vaccinated people. And you know, I'm watching that now get politicized by saying, oh, the governor is only pushing that because some donor that he has is invested in Regeneron, okay? Without getting into the details of that nonsense, okay? There's no evidence of that, just like there was no evidence of the public's stuff. Uh, and I, I just think that, again, we have medicine that is helpful, that can keep people out of the hospital, that has been shown scientifically to save lives, right? My, everyone likes to say, follow the science, follow the data. And, and we're politicizing it. I understand people want to point out the hypocrisy that he's doing that and he's not doing other things. That I think is fair criticism. Uh, but to say that it's only happening because of a political donation is not only wrong, okay? Because I serve there and I know it's wrong, okay? It does a disservice to those people now that might think they need to take this and now they're wondering, should they take it? Is it another hydrochloroquine? Which it isn't. It's real medicine uh, and it's saving people's lives. So I just wanted to say that because I just think it's so important to stop okay. that stuff. I appreciate that. I got to push back on three points here um, on this everlasting podcast. Number one, um, the AP story, which has been in the news and at the center of this controversy about uh, mono uh, stuff. Um, it never drew the conclusion on the pay to play like the publics did. Um, I, I, I think that the governor's office drew that conclusion out for it. 
Um, and I think that, you know, I do think that there is, is a hypocrisy from the governor's office and the governor who bemoaned out of state billionaires uh, influencing elections. And then this out of state billionaire who donated $5 million to Ron DeSantis, his medicine does show up. I do think that there is a credibility issue here. Remember, as you well know, the governor said that hydrochloroquine was going to be a quote game changer. And it was something that got pushed onto him by the Adelsons and, you know, and there was a tie to a business in Israel and I got all that. And that turned out to be uh, a, a wolf's ticket. And so I think, you know, there's a little bit of a credibility gap, especially because as, you, as we sit here and do these press conferences, I think that only 17 people uh, three days ago were treated for the Regen with Regeneron in Jacksonville, the, the hotspot of the pandemic in the country. How many people, like for every press conference that he does about this, why isn't he doing a press conference about getting vaccinated? He has not put out a tweet, not put out a post on in 152 days as we speak right now about getting vaccinated. And I don't want to hear the argument that people are not going to get vaccinated. From Sunday to Monday, 504,000 Americans got newly vaccinated. That was people, that wasn't a booster shot, that wasn't you know a second shot or anything like that. 504,000 people decided, hey, you know what? I've seen enough. I'm gonna go and get vaccinated. So it does still matter if the, the leader of the Confederacy here, Ron DeSantis, would say something like, hey, let's make one last push on vaccines. I'm gonna go down with Lenny Curry and we're gonna go down to Jacksonville and get vaccinated. And we don't see that. And so, you know, I think you can walk and chew gum at both times. I think that, listen, whatever this, this treatment is, I hope that I never get COVID, but I hope it's available for me. I'm glad it's there, but I think he should be talking about vaccines nine times out of 10. And then this should be an afterthought. This should not be the entire focus of Governor DeSantis's response to the pandemic. Yeah, and listen, I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say, why is he only doing X? Why isn't he also doing Y? I, I think that is a fair question. I think that's fair, fair criticism. And whether the article draws the conclusion or not, just by the title and the first paragraph, when you, which you and I both know is really all that people read, okay? Uh, by saying there's a donation, by, by, <laughs> well, by, by saying there's a donation, and this is why he's doing it, right? Just even if they don't draw the conclusion, just by putting it there, right? Um, that, that to me, is, it's been wrong. There's been no evidence ever since they've tried all of this nonsense. Uh, and it does a disservice for everyone who is sick to their stomach that the vaccine got politicized, regardless of whose fault it was. You're just, you just think it's ridiculous that it got politicized. Let's not politicize medicine that works. Regeneron works. It's not hydrochloroquine. It's not these other things that you've read about on the internet. It is real medicine. It was given to the president of the United States, Donald Trump, when he got COVID um, and uh, it works. Hospitals around the country are giving it to patients every day. Again, there are only so many tools in the toolbox. Regeneron, you have remdesivir. These are things uh, that have shown uh, shown to work. So I just think that, uh, you know, especially people in the media who are upset that medicine has been politicized during COVID. Well, well, if you don't have evidence, then then don't 
don't participate in politicizing medicine with 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 donations. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it, it just I just think that we 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 got to be careful. So, uh, but uh, you we'll, we'll end it here unless unless we want to ask each other any specific I do. questions. Go. I, I, let's ask let's ask on a fun note. So, as everybody knows, we vacationed together uh, in Puerto Rico. Well, well hold on. Uh, but when you say together, it makes it sound like we were in a bed. <laughs> no. So you and I were at the same vacation spot at the same time after you left or left uh, state government, and we were able to travel. Um, we saw each other the first day or so, and then you said, hey, Peter, why don't we get a drink tonight? And then you ghosted me for the next 48 hours. Um, I just want to know what you did um, in those 48 hours while you ghosted me. So uh, I was with my wife, uh, who I had spent a significant amount of time away from for two and a half years. So we did, we did want some uh, alone time. Um, and we actually left the resort. We went and did some, uh, like some excursions and stuff. Uh, but at, also at that time, uh, and I'm not going to say her name because I believe it's, it's uh, she who shall not be named. Um, but I was working on that, that story uh, at the time uh, of, uh, of uh, the, the, the person, uh, which it came out a couple of days later, which is now, you know, she's, she's disappeared from Twitter. Uh, and rightfully so. So th those were the those were the things that were unfortunately occupying my time. As my as my wife says to me, uh, every every time we've gone away, uh, there's always some disaster of the moment, big or small, that uh, gets in the way. All right. And do you have anything for me this week that you, I mean, on the fly, wanted to ask me? You know, I I I don't I don't know that I have anything that I I want to ask you uh, today. Uh, you know, I mean, how about this? I'll end it also on a positive note. How are you? How are you doing? How's your daughter? How's your <laughs> wife? How's every? How's everybody doing? Um, you know, what's what's going on? I mean, it that's almost in your Larry David voice, uh, right there. And um, no, if I was doing yeah. my Larry David voice, I would have said Palestinian chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Phil's listening to this. Phil got a special gift this week from me. I build Legos for people um, that I that I think uh, that I love. Um, we love Legos. Our mutual friend Eric Johnson, he's a big Star Wars fan. I sent him a big Lego about three months ago of the the new Star Wars um, uh, battleship. I sent Phil the um, you and my you the, and my four year old. My four year old downloaded the Lego app on his iPad. Uh, and he's very big in the Legos and Legos, Lego has like reinvented themselves. It's really amazing. And it is amazing. And there is amazing. the instructions now are all online. So he on his iPad follows the instructions step by step by step. He's four and he's building Legos for nine-year-olds. Uh, and he loves, it. in fact, he's literally downstairs right now building one of the new Mario, uh, Luigi yeah. sets. That's awesome. Um, we'll talk more about Legos in an upcoming edition. Could be our first sponsor. Uh, Could be our first sponsor. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? And then when they get knocked over, you can like you can run down there and like kind of state of emergency. I'm really excited. We finally really got into the the theme of this podcast, state of emergency. Thank you to Jimmy Patronus uh, for joining us this week. Thank you for your listenership. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, we haven't decided on a guest. Uh, on behalf of my co-host, 
uh, Jared Moskowitz, our producer, Phil Ammon. Uh, I'm Peter Schorsch. Thank you for listening to State of Emergency.